Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 5 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 5. Mrs. Brown had been very much vexed at her dismissal. The Browns were a childless couple, and the arrangement had suited them perfectly. Their resentment was very bitter. Mrs. Brown had to remain ashore alone with her rage, but the steward was nursing his on board. Poor Flora had no greater enemy. The aggrieved mate had no greater sympathiser. And Mrs. Brown, with a woman's quick power of observation and inference, the putting of two and two together, had come to a certain conclusion which she had imparted to her husband before leaving the ship. The morose steward permitted himself once to make an allusion to it in Powell's hearing. It was in the officer's mess-room at the end of a meal while he lingered after putting a fruit pie on the table. He and the chief mate started a dialogue about the alarming change in the captain, the sallow steward looking down with a sinister frown, Franklin rolling upwards his eyes, sentimental in a red face. Young Powell had heard a lot of that sort of thing by that time. It was growing monotonous. It had always sounded to him a little absurd. He struck in impatiently with the remark that such lamentations over a man merely because he had taken a wife seemed to him like lunacy. Franklin muttered, Depends on what the wife is up to. The steward, leaning against the bulkhead near the door, glowered at Powell, that newcomer, that ignoramus, that stranger without right or privileges. He snarled, Wife! Call her a wife, do you? What the devil do you mean by this? exclaimed young Powell. I know what I know. My old woman has not been six months on board for nothing. You had better ask her when we get back. And meeting sullenly the withering stare of Mr. Powell, the steward retreated backwards. Our young friend turned at once upon the mate. And you let that confounded bottle-washer talk like this before you, Mr. Franklin? Well, I'm astonished. Ah, it isn't what you think. It isn't what you think. Mr. Franklin looked more apoplectic than ever. If it comes to that, I could astonish you. But it's no use. I myself can hardly... You couldn't understand. I hope you won't try to make mischief. There was a time, young fellow, when I would have dared any man, any man, you hear, to make mischief between me and Captain Anthony. But not now. Not now. There's a change. Not in me, though. Young Powell rejected with indignation any suggestion of making mischief. Who do you take me for, he cried. And you'd better tell that steward to be careful what he says before me, or I'll spoil his good looks for him for a month, and we'll leave him to explain the why of it to the captain the best way he can. This speech established Powell as a champion of Mrs. Anthony. Nothing more bearing on the question was ever said before him. He did not care for the steward's black looks. Franklin, never conversational, even at the best of times, and avoiding now the only topic near his heart, addressed him only on matters of duty and for that too Powell cared very little. The woes of the apoplectic mate had begun to bore him long before. Yet he felt lonely a bit at times. Therefore the little intercourse with Mrs. Anthony, either in one dog watch or the other, was something to be looked forward to. The captain did not mind it. That was evident from his manner. One night he inquired, they were then alone on the poop, what they had been talking about that evening. Powell had to confess that it was about the ship, Mrs. Anthony had been asking him questions. "'Takes interest, eh?' jerked out the captain, moving rapidly up and down the weather side of the poop. 
Yes, sir, Mrs. Anthony seems to get hold wonderfully of what one's telling her. Sailor's granddaughter, one of the old school. Old sea dog of the best kind, I believe, ejaculated the captain, swinging past his motionless second officer and leaving the words behind him like a trail of sparks succeeded by a perfect conversational darkness, because for the next two hours till he left the deck he didn't open his lips again. On another occasion, we mustn't forget that the ship had crossed the line and was adding up south latitude every day by then, on another occasion, about seven in the evening, Powell, on duty, heard his name uttered softly in the companion. The captain was on the stairs, thin-faced, his eyes sunk, on his arm a Shetland wool wrap. Mr. Powell, here. Yes, sir. Give this to Mrs. Anthony. Evenings are getting chilly. And the haggard face sank out of sight. Mrs. Anthony was surprised on seeing the shawl. The captain wants you to put this on, explained young Pal, and as she raised herself in her seat, he dropped it on her shoulders. She wrapped herself up closely. Where was the captain? she asked. He was in the companion, called me on purpose, said Pal, and then retreated discreetly, because she looked as though she didn't want to talk any more that evening. Mr. Smith, the old gentleman, was as usual sitting on the skylight near her head, brooding over the long chair, but by no means inimical, as far as his unreadable face went, to those conversations of the two youngest people on board. In fact, they seemed to give him some pleasure. Now and then he would raise his faded china eyes to the animated face of Mr. Powell thoughtfully. When the young sailor was by, the old man became less rigid, and when his daughter, on rare occasions, smiled at some artless tale of Mr. Powell, the inexpressive face of Mr. Smith reflected dimly that flash of evanescent mirth. For Mr. Powell had come now to entertain his captain's wife with anecdotes from the not very distant past when he was a boy on board various ships. Funny things do happen on board ship. Flora was quite surprised at times to find herself amused. She was even heard to laugh twice in the course of a month. It was not a loud sound, but it was startling enough in the after-end of the Ferndale, where low tones or silence were the rule. The second time this happened, the captain himself must have been startled somewhere down below, because he emerged from the depths of his unobtrusive existence and began his tramping on the opposite side of the poop. Almost immediately he called his young second officer over to him. This was not done in displeasure. The glance he fastened on Mr. Powell conveyed a sort of approving wonder, he engaged him in desultory conversation as if for the only purpose of keeping a man who could provoke such a sound near his person. Mr. Powell felt himself liked. He felt it. Liked by that haggard, restless man who threw at him disconnected phrases to which his answers were, Yes, sir. No, sir. Oh, certainly. I suppose so, sir. And might have been clearly anything else for all the other cared. It was then, Mr. Powell told me, that he discovered in himself an already old-established liking for Captain Anthony. He also felt sorry for him without being able to discover the origins of that sympathy of which he had become so suddenly aware. Meantime, Mr. Smith, bending forward stiffly as though he had a hinged back, was speaking to his daughter. She was a child no longer. He wanted to know if she believed in... in hell, in eternal punishment... His peculiar voice, as if filtered through cotton wool, was inaudible on the other side of the deck. Poor Flora, taken very much unawares, made an inarticulate murmur, 
shook her head vaguely and glanced in the direction of the pacing Anthony, who was not looking her way. It was no use glancing in that direction. Of young Powell leaning against the mizzenmast and facing his captain, she could only see the shoulder and part of a blue surge back. And the unworried, unaccented voice of her father went on tormenting her. You see, you must understand, when I came out of jail it was with joy. That is, my soul was fairly torn in two, but anyway, to see you happy, I had made up my mind to that. Once I could be sure that you were happy, then of course I would have had no reason to care for life, strictly speaking, which is all right for an old man, though naturally no reason to wish for death either. But this sort of life, what sense, what meaning, what value has it either for you or for me? It's just sitting down to look at the death that's coming, coming. What else is it? I don't know how you can put up with that. I don't think you can stand it for long. Some day you will jump overboard. Captain Anthony had stopped for a moment, staring ahead from the break of the poop, and poor Flora sent at his back a look of despairing appeal which would have moved a heart of stone. But as though she had done nothing, he did not stir in the least. She got out of the long chair and went towards the companion. Her father followed, carrying a few small objects, a handbag, a handkerchief, a book. They went down together. It was only then that Captain Anthony turned, looked at the place they had vacated, and resumed his tramping, but not his desultory conversation with his second officer. His nervous exasperation had grown so much that now, very often, he used to lose control of his voice. If he did not watch himself, it would suddenly die in his throat. He had to make sure before he ventured on the simplest saying, an order, a remark on the wind, a simple good morning. That's why his utterance was abrupt, his answers to people startlingly brusque and often not forthcoming at all. It happens to the most resolute of men to find himself at grips not only with unknown forces, but with a well-known force, the real might of which he had not understood. Anthony had discovered that he was not the proud master, but the chafing captive of his generosity. It rose in front of him like a wall, which his respect for himself forbade him to scale, he said to himself, Yes, I was a fool, but she has trusted me. Trusted. A terrible word to any man somewhat exceptional in a world in which success has never been found in renunciation and good faith. And it must also be said, in order not to make Anthony more stupidly sublime than he was, that the behaviour of Flora kept him at a distance. The girl was afraid to add to the exasperation of her father. It was her unhappy lot to be made more wretched by the only affection which she could not suspect. She could not be angry with it, however, and out of deference for that exaggerated sentiment, she hardly dared to look otherwise than by stealth at the man whose masterful compassion had carried her off. And quite unable to understand the extent of Anthony's delicacy, she said to herself that he didn't care. He probably was beginning at bottom to detest her, like the governess, like the maiden lady, like the German woman, like Mrs. Fine, like Mr. Fine, and he was extraordinary, he was generous. At the same time, she had moments of irritation. He was violent, headstrong, perhaps stupid. Well, he had had his way. A man who has had his way is seldom happy, for generally he finds that the way does not lead very far on this earth of desires which can never be fully satisfied. 
Anthony had entered with extreme precipitation the enchanted gardens of Armida, saying to himself, at last. As to Armida herself, he was not going to offer her any violence. But now he had discovered that all the enchantment was in Armida herself, in Armida's smiles. This Armida did not smile. She existed, unapproachable, behind the blank wall of his renunciation. His force, fit for action, experienced the impatience, the indignation, almost the despair of his vitality arrested, bound, stilled, progressively worn down, frittered away by time, by that force blind and insensible which seems inert and yet uses one's life up by its imperceptible action, dropping minute after minute on one's living heart like drops of water wearing down a stone. He upbraided himself. What else could he have expected? He had rushed in like a ruffian. He had dragged the poor defenceless thing by the hair of her head, as it were, on board that ship. It was really atrocious. Nothing assured him that his person could be attractive to this or any other woman, and his proceedings were enough in themselves to make anyone odious. He must have been bereft of his senses. She must fatally detest and fear him. Nothing could make up for such brutality. And yet, somehow, he resented this very attitude which seemed to him completely justifiable. Surely he was not too monstrous, morally, to be looked at frankly sometimes. But no, she wouldn't. Well, perhaps some day. Only he was not going ever to attempt to beg for forgiveness. With the repulsion she felt for his person, she would certainly misunderstand the most guarded words, the most careful advances. Never, never. It would occur to Anthony at the end of such meditations that death was not an unfriendly visitor after all. No wonder then that even young Powell, his faculties having been put on the alert, began to think that there was something unusual about the man who had given him his chance in life. Yes, decidedly, his captain was strange. There was something wrong somewhere, he said to himself, never guessing that his young and candid eyes were in the presence of a passion, profound, tyrannical and mortal, discovering its own existence, astounded at feeling itself helpless and dismayed at finding itself incurable. Powell had never before felt this mysterious uneasiness so strongly as on that evening when it had been his good fortune to make Mrs. Anthony laugh a little by his artless prattle. Standing out of the way, he had watched his captain walk the weather side of the poop, he took full cognizance of his liking for that inexplicably strange man and saw him swerve towards the companion and go down below with sympathetic, if utterly uncomprehending, eyes. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Smith came up alone and manifested a desire for a little conversation. He, too, if not so mysterious as the captain, was not very comprehensible to Mr. Powell's uninformed candour. He often favoured thus the second officer. His talk alluded somewhat enigmatically and often without visible connection to Mr. Powell's friendliness towards himself and his daughter. For I am well aware that we have no friends on board this ship, my dear young man, he would add, except yourself. Flora feels that too. And Mr. Powell, flattered and embarrassed, could but emit a vague murmur of protest. For the statement was true in a sense, though the fact was in itself insignificant. The feelings of the ship's company could not possibly matter to the captain's wife and to Mr. Smith, her father. 
Why the latter should so often allude to it was what surprised our Mr. Powell. This was by no means the first occasion, more like the twentieth, rather. And in his weak voice, with his monotonous intonation, leaning over the rail and looking at the water, the other continued this conversation, or rather, his remarks, remarks of such a monstrous nature that Mr. Powell had no option but to accept them for gruesome jesting. For instance, said Mr. Smith, that mate, Franklin, I believe he would just as soon see us both overboard as not. It's not so bad as that, laughed Mr. Powell, feeling uncomfortable, because his mind did not accommodate itself easily to exaggeration of statement. He isn't a bad chap, really, he added, very conscious of Mr. Franklin's offensive manner, of which instances were not far to seek. He's such a fool as to be jealous. He has been with the captain for years. It's not for me to say, perhaps, but I think the captain has spoiled all that gang of old servants. They are like a lot of pet old dogs. Wouldn't let anybody come near him if they could help it. I've never seen anything like it. And the second mate, I believe, was like that too. Well, he isn't here, luckily. There would have been one more enemy, said Mr. Smith. There's enough of them without him. And you being here instead of him makes it much more pleasant for my daughter and myself. One feels there may be a friend in need. For really, for a woman all alone on board ship amongst a lot of unfriendly men... "'But Mrs. Powell is not alone,' exclaimed Powell. "'There's you, and there's the—' "'Mr. Smith interrupted him. "'Nobody's immortal, and there are times when one feels ashamed to live, "'such an evening as this, for instance.' "'It was a lovely evening. "'The colours of a splendid sunset had died out, "'and the breath of a warm breeze seemed to have smoothed out the sea. "'Away to the south, the sheet lightning was like the flashing "'of an enormous lantern hidden under the horizon.' In order to change the conversation, Mr. Powell said, Anyway, no one can judge you with being a Jonah, Mr. Smith. We have had a magnificent quick passage so far. The captain ought to be pleased, and I suppose you are not sorry either. This diversion was not successful. Mr. Smith emitted a sort of bitter chuckle and said, Jonah, that's the fellow that was thrown overboard by some sailors. It seems to me it's very easy at sea to get rid of a person one does not like. The sea does not give up its dead as the earth does. You forget the whale, sir, said young Powell. Mr. Smith gave a start. Eh? What whale? Oh, Jonah. I wasn't thinking of Jonah. I was thinking of this passage which seems so quick to you. But only think what it is to me. It isn't a life going about the sea like this. As, for instance, if one were to fall ill, there isn't a doctor to find out what's the matter with one. It's worrying. It makes me anxious at times. Is Mrs. Anthony not feeling well? asked Powell. But Mr. Smith's remark was not meant for Mrs. Anthony. She was well. He himself was well. It was the captain's health that did not seem quite satisfactory. Had Mr. Powell noticed his appearance? Mr. Powell didn't know enough of the captain to judge. He couldn't tell. But he observed thoughtfully that Mr. Franklin had been saying the same thing and Franklin had known the captain for years. The mate was quite worried about it. This intelligence startled Mr. Smith considerably. "'Does he think he is in danger of dying?' he exclaimed, with an animation quite extraordinary for him, which horrified Mr. Powell. "'Heavens! Die! No! Don't you alarm yourself, sir. I've never heard a word about danger from Mr. Franklin.' 
Well, well, sighed Mr. Smith, and left the poop for the saloon rather abruptly. As a matter of fact, Mr. Franklin had been on deck for some considerable time. He had come to relieve young Powell, but seeing him engaged in talk with the enemy, with one of the enemies at least, had kept at a distance, which, the poop of the Ferndale being over seventy feet long, he had no difficulty in doing. Mr. Powell saw him at the head of the ladder, leaning on his elbow, melancholy and silent. "'Oh, here you are, sir. "'Here I am. Here I've been ever since six o'clock. "'Didn't want to interrupt the pleasant conversation. "'If you want to put in half of your watch below jawing with a dear friend, "'that's not my affair. Funny taste, though.' "'He isn't a bad chap,' said the impartial Powell. "'The mate snorted angrily, tapping the deck with his foot. "'Then, isn't he? "'Well, give him my love when you come together again "'for another nice long yarn.' I say, Mr. Franklin, I wonder the captain don't take offence at your manners. The captain? I wish to goodness he would start a row with me. Then I should know at least I am somebody on board. I'd welcome it, Mr. Powell. I'd rejoice. And damn me, I would talk back too till I roused him. He's a shadow of himself. He walks about his ship like a ghost. He's fading away right before our eyes. But of course, you don't see. You don't care a hang. Why should you? Mr. Powell did not wait for more. He went down on the main deck. Without taking the mate's Jeremiah seriously, he put them beside the words of Mr. Smith. He had grown already attached to Captain Anthony. There was something not only attractive, but compelling in the man. And it is very difficult for youth to believe in the menace of death. Not in the fact itself, but in its proximity to a breathing, moving, talking, superior human being showing no sign of disease and Mr. Powell thought that this talk was all nonsense. But his curiosity was awakened. There was something, and at any time some circumstance might occur. No, he would never find out. There was nothing to find out, most likely. Mr. Powell went to his room, where he tried to read a book he had already read a good many times. Presently a bell rang for the officer's supper. End of Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 5